What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another Safe at Home episode of Totally 80s. And since we're all at home, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, and email us your comments and show ideas at podcast at totally80s.com. Just a reminder, if you want to see our faces, you can check out this episode on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel. So check that out. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, the other John Hughes, as he will always be known to me, the other John Hughes. I'll take it. I mean, I can't uh, usurp the king John Hughes, so I'll be the other John Hughes. Just fine. You're in good company, though. You're in good company. So today we're welcoming back someone to the show. The last time we were on, we were talking about music on TV, not music TV, not MTV, but other ways we got our music fix on television in the 80s. And we were having such a great time. We spent so much time talking about Solid Gold and American Bandstand and uh, Friday Night Videos and MV3 and Soul Trade and the list goes on that we ran out of time. So we asked her if she would come back and she so graciously said yes, because we just couldn't, we couldn't leave it there. There was just too much to talk about. We're going to get into a really exciting part in a moment. Our special guest today, returning guest. This is, uh, I believe, our first returning guest. This is our first yes. presentation. She's a producer, director, writer, visual artist, and pop culture documentarian. She's directed many music videos for artists like Juliana Hatfield and Creamer. She's the creator of the instant cult classic Network 77, which is a retro futuristic collection of comedy and music. And under the umbrella, she has developed music programming like The Hayden Triplet Show, Star Pop, and most recently, Music. She's also an experienced podcast guest. Yes, because she's been on Totally 80s before. Uh, I wasn't reading that off a script at all. But yeah, that script is true. She is an experienced podcast guest. She's a friend of Totally 80s. And we're very help- happy to welcome back Rachel Lichtman. Hello. Everyone. <laughs> wow. Hello. Thank you. Happy to have you back because I'm, you know, we just need to keep going where we're going. When we last were talking, we were talking about how MTV kind of was where people were getting their weird music video fix in the early days when MTV was playing pretty much any weird new wave artist that was coming out of England. And then MTV became huge. And then there were other shows that came out that were sort of kind of filling the void that MTV had vacated. Now that MTV was playing superstars, we need another place to get that under underground stuff. And we, when we left, I believe we were talking about Night Flight. For people who take their rock and roll seriously, Night Flight delivers. Everyone who's anyone is talking about it. Hi, I'm Grace Jones. Hi, this is Adam X. Hi, this is Steve Miller. When I fly like an eagle, I fly in Night Flight. Yeah, that was a real that was a real game changer for me personally. I mean, it wasn't just about you know sometimes MTV would have like in the early days there'd be videos that were like a, like a little scary, like you know oh it's like a it's a, it's a roasted chicken with cobwebs on it or like high heels walking by hot steam, you know, and you're like, Ooh, like what is all this? And then um, night flight sort of picked up where that like left off, you know, where you're, it's, it's, you're discovering an entire universe of, of weird B movies, old and new and a movies. Like I first saw magical mystery tour on night flight and um, with commercials and the whole thing. And uh, in those days, cause we had, we were early cable adopters. Um, so, you know, anything on the USA network, by the way, Dance Party USA is another one. To, that was a thing. What about Dance Party USA? Nine Inch Nails on Dance Party USA. Yeah. USA. Right here. Dance Party US fucking A. 
was. Like, we don't know what our audience is. Like, USA didn't have, like, an audience. They weren't like, oh, silk stockings. Let's, like, put that show together. So Nightflight came on, and it was, like, this world of, like, Andy Warhol's Dracula, you know, and the fabulous stains, and, like, you know, this other world that was, like, just completely foreign to me that I discovered at a time where I was, like, I was open for business when it came to like, what can this like small town gal absorb from these worlds, you know? And I feel like Night Flight was the biggest um, influence I can think of really for me at that time. I discovered Bauhaus from Night Flight. Yeah, they used to, for whatever reason, I don't care what the reason was. I just want to thank them for it. Whatever reason it was, it was a good reason. But for whatever reason, they were showing like a Bauhaus concert video all the time. It was on like almost everywhere. <laughs> and even yeah. though Bauhaus, you know, legendary, set the template for goth. Listen to our goth podcast, by the way, everybody here. That was a really good one. You know, Bauhaus, very important fan, but MTV did not get on board with Bauhaus. I don't ever remember seeing a Bauhaus video on MTV. I don't remember no. hearing them on even K-Rock out here. They may have played Bella Lugosi, but probably a very severe radio edit of it. But yeah. Bauhaus, entire Bauhaus concert at like 1 a.m. on my TV, right. like that blew my mind. And that completely, I will always associate Night Flight and Bauhaus in my mind together. That's my mm -hmm. fondest memory. Even 120 Minutes would play stuff like like Sisters of Mercy or something like no, that. Bauhaus. It was it, it it was really not no. Not, I don't think they ever played Bauhaus. And uh, but then remember that uh, last time we were together, we spoke about the ratio of like comedy to music in some of these variety shows. And in Night Flight's case, it was a ratio of like, kind of like, like liquid sky, like reefer madness, like cult classics, like, you know, weird old black and white things that you didn't know about. And like, so it brought in this like art house cinema mm -hmm. to then the music was the other part of that. And um, so that was a whole new combo platter of information that, you know, yeah. As, as someone who works at Rhino Records, I really appreciated the curatorial aspect of that yeah. because there were themes. It was always take off to goth. And it was be there would be like music videos, concerts, oh, yeah. house, or, or in a feature length that was like The Hunger or something with David. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I believe I saw The Hunger on yeah. Night Flight. I feel that that Nothing was a thing. Better for me as a teenager in the 80s than on Friday and Saturday nights hearing Pat Prescott come on and talk about how, you know, tonight, Night Flight, take off to New Wave. And I get I so excited. Night Flight brings you Shriek Back, Susie and the Banshees, Echo and the Bunny Men, and more new sounds after this. And the best part was you would stay up till three, I think it was, and it looped. It would start over again mm -hmm. a.m. because it was only a three-hour show. And uh, it was just the best. I loved it so much. I loved it too. And even like weird stuff. I mean, I, it did loop. God, I think I saw the terror of Tiny Town like 20 times <laughs> in like a week because it was just constantly going. And uh, and it's funny when you think about how early cable started to develop too, um, other shows that, that as MTV developed, um, the curatorial aspect became a really important part of that. For example, when the, the comedy, Comedy Central was the comedy channel and also there was Ha. So there mm -hmm. were those, and they also curated a bunch of, it was like stand-up versus like episodes of Supercar or like weird old stuff that they just started to pack with content. It's funny that we're almost back at that place now where there's so many different streams that everybody's trying to like pull stuff together into something that's packaged up uh, content-wise. Uh, in those days, it was the Wild West. Nobody was even minding the store. You could really just get away with like, look, we've got to fill time. Yeah. Mystery Science Theater 3000 is a great example of a show that was greenlit because they needed to fill the time. You would never pitch a 90-minute show with like <laughs> basically unknowns with puppets and the whole thing um, and be able to run on a loop like they did as well. But the thing is, you take a chance on things like that and you end up with a with a cult audience who just like, dines out on you for the next like 30 years here we are still talking about this stuff you know honestly i'm feeling like you know obviously we're living in a a terrible time right now but something good that could come out of this is people are so hungry for content now there's time to fill people are at home 
and they're not going out and they're going to eventually get through their Netflix queue. Like maybe this would be a time for whether it's an online thing or the TV networks to start experimenting with this format again and say, let's take a chance on some crazy ass shit because you know, people want to watch stuff and there's going to be someone captive, literally captive audience at home. Look, that's that is a show. I, I started this show literally for us. It is for us, okay? There are jokes in there, and there, it's for Gen X. It's structurally nostalgic, okay? Everything I've ever done is long form, or it's like to, it's a, con a contextual collection of music from people who deserve to be there. It's egalitarian, you know? And it's also curatorial, for sure. And that, to me, is really important at a time when you've allowed the algorithm to take over. You know, there are still people out there, including the three of us just together, all three of us individually in everything that we try and do, we are really good at that kind of thing. You know what I mean? We're good at it. And um, we're good at it because we came up with those types of influences. And, you know, we, we aspire to that. I want to create things that, a, that an 18 year old kid who's like in art school right now sees and is like, oh my goodness, like, and it's like funny or entertaining to them, or I introduce them to a band that they might not have known because it didn't pop up in their playlist. Okay. I won't mention any corporate names. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to jump in and say Network 77 is really amazing. It's a piece of work. If you guys have not checked it out, you've got to see it. Uh, it it's it's one of those things that will take you back to this era and you'll go, you'll get it immediately if you listen to the show. I'm going to check that out. Thank well, you. speaking of curatorial though, and also sort of tacking on to what we we're talking about with the aesthetic of night flight, even though I just got done saying that MTV started to drift away from it. Um, it was just because they got into, um, as Rachel has mentioned before, the programming became more specialized instead of yeah. being music for all. And of course there was, you know, yo MTV raps and there was, 120 minutes which i was addicted to there were all these specialty shows right but one kind of like just weird show that was very curatorial was irs's the cutting edge i was obsessed yeah. with it the fact that this show existed on mtv in the mid 80s where it was like you know peter zaremba from the flesh tones co ho he hosted it and they had like but i actually discovered some there was some very weird stuff on it i remember very specifically finding out about the bat cave and specimen from IRS is the cutting edge because they went over to London to do a whole feature on it. That blew my mind. That was like, that's the world I want to live in. But I actually was introduced. I know I was introduced to Terrence Trent Darby via this show because he right. wasn't quite as big yet. And he was kind of just this like cool, you know, uh, revivalist soul guy from England. I remember, I think this is really colored. And I've probably talked about this, John, on the Madonna podcast we did. I think the reason why I've always sort of seen Madonna as kind of this punk underground East Village girl. And I'm very aware that that was where she came from, even though she became the biggest woman on the planet, is because I discovered her from IRS is the cutting edge. They showed the Lucky Star video, which looks like it cost $5. She looked almost kind of goth. She had all this jewelry on. She was in black. She was in netting. She looked, you know, very self-styled and kind of like punky and arty and ragamuffin-y. And I watched that video on IRS is the cutting edge and Peter Zaremba was telling me this chick from the East Village was doing cool shit at Danceteria. So, you know, kudos to IRS is the cutting edge. That show meant a lot to me. It was interesting because it was obviously the, the house organ promotional vehicle for IRS records, right? But they would feature other artists from other labels like Madonna. You said the thing that uh, really struck with me was I was in 1984, I was the biggest Smiths fan you will ever find on this planet. Uh, and the IRS is the cutting edge. They had Morrissey on once. And I remember it vividly. He was in a bathroom with just like a single camera on a tripod, no one else there. <laughs> and they gave him a bunch of cards with words written on them. And he had to hold up the word and just describe what he thought about that particular word or what it meant to him. And you never saw Morrissey or the Smiths being interviewed on TV. It was like such a, a moment for me. And wow. the fact that this record company was willing to spend money, I don't know if MTV co-financed it or what, on other labels acts was like hey that's the power of content marketing right there they, they were first well let's take a total 180 we're talking about all these like hip cool underground you know edgy shows but we haven't yet talked about the best show of all time not just the best show of the 80s not just the best music show of the 80s the best show ever put 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 in on the hits 
Best show ever. Oh my God. We listen to the radio and shake down every hit. Just mouth the words and move it to the tune that fits. Put, 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 putting on the hits. You know, they got the lip syncing right. You know, the lip syncing did not work so much on all these performance shows like American Bandstand, where all the artists uh, were trying to like lip sync on solid gold at the end and didn't quite know what to do with their hands or their mouth or the mic because the song was weirdly fading out. But put it on the hits, got it right. And I'm sorry, before there was this friggin' lip sync battle, before that, 30 years earlier, putting on the hits. Oh my God. I wanted to be on putting on the hits. It's like the most bonkers. I don't know if I can even impress on people how bonkers it was. It made the mass singer look like meet the press. This was some weird stuff. Actually, you could just read my entire article about it for the 35th anniversary that ran on Yahoo. Yes, that's right. I wrote an entire article about putting on the hits and, uh, but we can talk about it here because I think Rachel, you have some fond memories of this show. I am here for a putting on the hits article slash conversation slash like DVD box set. Let's just do a whole thing. So here's the thing. First of all, Alan Fawcett, who? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so here we go. Alan Fawcett, another one of these, like, you know, in that solid goal that we talked about last time, where it's like you just grabbed some personality. So then Putting on the hits had that. First of all, I saw a lot of weird, like new wave stuff. In fact, one of my mention, um, well, Adam and the Ants was definitely a big one that they always did. <laughs> and then Sparks, of course, the through line to all of these shows. Somehow, there was the greatest, 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 greatest performance. I feel like John Hughes, you might have seen me like Instagram this before, but it's like a brother and sister. Okay. <laughs> They do angst in my pants, and it's so, so good. When a 29-year-old recruitment consultant decided to pay tribute to the great act Sparks, he had to recruit his sister. Here they are, Tony and Susan Bram. I hope it doesn't show, it'll go away. And it's like it's my article following up about this brother and sister and like their story. They were from Australia and they came to LA to be on the show. And it was this great thing. But, um, I have to say that putting on the hits really brought, you know, this element of you that, you know, first of all, it was obviously a game show. It was like a contestant based thing, competition based. Okay. Um, and some of the people though got really, really creative. Like I'll never forget. There's like the half Lionel Richie face, half Diana Ross face for endless love. There's only in my life, the only thing that's bright. Love every I have my top ten here. For those listening who I imagine if people have listen, a top ten. Yeah, it was in my <laughs> I'm gonna count them down American top ten Casey Case style now. For those but I should say for I, I assumed everybody knew what this was, but when this article came out, I found out that this show was quite regional, even though it was a successful show, not everyone got it. So just real quick for people who haven't figured out what this is, it was a competition like a talent show where people lip synced to hits they were put in on the hits and um sometimes they just did it straight up uh like and sometimes they did like a full-on like impersonation thing like doing a michael jackson song while dressed in a red leather jacket and moonwalking but some people got very creative so i will count down my top 10 i'm so excited to do this i'm gonna do my own casey Kasem. number 10 is metronome doing heavenly action a relatively obscure song by erasure full-on goth out they all look like martin gore Number nine, <laughs> number nine, infant rock, 
So a bunch of baby, a bunch of guys dressed as babies in diapers. So I'll just leave wow. it at that. Doing bang your head by Quiet Riot. Number number eight, Cupid by Donnie Lovedart. Speak, keeping with the infant theme, a guy dressed in a diaper as Cupid singing, Cupid, pull back. Number seven, Little Punk doing Shout. Uh, and it, he looks, he's basically dressed like Cherry from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Number six, the guy, uh, another baby thing, Gregory Ga Geiger doing baby face with what looks like a uh, conjoined twin baby, like fastened to his shoulder. It's super creepy. We'll give you nightmares forever. Number five, Fancy Ray doing I Spell on You in a full on Screaming Jay Hawkins mode. Number four, fast food. I don't know if you remember this one, this guy who like, just did some kind of like weird fast food drive-in where he's like arguing through. He's yes, I remember from Dr. Demento. Yes, and he's just in a car door window, like yelling yeah. through the window. That's no number three, Debbie Sicta doing dancing from uh, from the tubes from Xanadu. Yeah. Also half and half, she's doing both sides, you know, the tubes <laughs> and the big band. So she's got a like line of demarcation makeup in her face and she's turning. Yeah. Number Number two, was 3D, a guy named 3D, doing 19 by Parl Hardcastle, in like pretty much doing like the Max Headroom robot thing. I and then, it's yesterday, by the way. Oh my God. And yeah. number one, a guy named Houston, you mentioned him, Houston doing Endless Love, a duet with himself, <laughs> and Diana Ross, and the Lionel Richie parts. I told he's you. Drag on one half of his body, and he's a man on the other half. And he, you know, before before there was lip sync battle, but also before there was RuPaul's Drag Race, there before was Pearl, on before Pearl doing it. But I, but after the Gong Show, like I'm I'm listening to this yeah. and I'm thinking this is really Gong Show like. You're right. You're you know, right. You know what I mean? Like there was a celebrity panel of judges that was like Tony Basil and whomever. And then you were voted, you know, they, they couldn't gong you, obviously, but it's that vibe, you know. But my favorite part of putting on hits, can I just tell you, by the way, that list, I agree with every, and I'm just glad that I already called the number one before you even started it. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, was, it was iconic. It was iconic. You were going to show up to putting on the hits with your face drawn in half, like you just go home, okay? So, Anyway, but my favorite thing about putting on the hits is that they would vote you on uh, originality and appearance and lip sync. And then there was that, there's this computer calculation sound that they would do when they were trying to add up your points. It's like you're literally adding 10 plus 8 plus 2. You don't need the computer. Like, actually, her away. Okay. I, I have a list of some of the, from this handy article that I'm so glad I wrote before doing this. Some of the, um, the celebrity judges that they had over the years were yeah. Helen Reddy. She was a judge. Hear her roar. Ugh. Paul Williams. Of course. Stephanie Mills. Marilyn McCoo, because he got around. Um, Linda Blair. Don Felder from the Eagles, apparently, did it. And now apparently I went on YouTube and watched all this. So who are we kidding? <laughs> But also, interestingly, at the very beginning of his career, when Brad Pitt was a very rising actor, he was on uh, Growing Pains at the time, and I don't, you know, in a, in a recurring role, he actually was a celebrity judge for the open call auditions at a Dallas mall. And yes, this is on YouTube. They show him coming. I'm going, hey, and our, it's like someone put up their audition on YouTube, but they do show the Alan Fawcett's there, of course. He, you know, he was representing. Uh, he was the big star of this. But then the, he's like, oh, we got from Growing Pains in Dallas, Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt gets up and like waves and goes, hey, nice, happy to be here, whatever. His career was clearly downhill after that. <laughs> yeah. There is an, act, an Oscar winning actor who actually did go on the show. Cuba Gooding Jr. was on the show. He was, uh, he competed in 1985 uh, doing a Dougie Fresh tribute, but he, uh, did not win, so the show did not show him the money. I'm sorry, I'll see myself oh. out. I'll see myself <laughs> out. He did not win, but he was on. Uh, it was called Cuba Gooding CG Productions, and they did uh, a, a performance of the show by Dougie Fresh. And clearly, that's what he should have won his Oscar for. By the way, this is bringing up a very important point of, about. Um, I want to talk about Showtime at the Apollo as well, which is another yeah. one. <laughs> Speaking of like uh, being exposed to a lot of stuff because Showtime at the Apollo, not to not to tr go away from putting on the hits because I'm certainly not. No, but I like going down this talent show thing because this yeah. will lead into you mentioned the Gong Show, which I think you're right laid the groundwork. So the Dollar Ninety Eight Beauty Pageant or whatever oh, it was no. called in the '70s. But then we had 
we had put on the hits. We had, we're going to talk about Paul. We had star search. That was, I think the, the whole numerical addition thing that you were talking about came from the four stars, five stars thing. But talk, let's talk about the Apollo because there were some people that went on it that actually like star search, you know, went on to be actual stars. It was a big deal. I mean, I think that also uh, the, the historical aspect of it too was so cool. And it was after um, Saturday night live in my market. I don't know about you guys. Mm -hmm. I just you know, so I, it was perfectly poised. I like, I'm staying up, I'm watching it, you know? And again, just like being exposed to like this, it's like, it is a competition, but the amount of talent and like the level of talent on that show was like through the roof, I would say way more even than a star search. Like you, even just to, even just to rub that stump, like you had to be good. But my favorite part of it was always the ringer who would get Sandman off, you know, like, <laughs> Where you knew it was gonna be like, oh, oh god, here comes some rodeo clown, like it's a total ringer. Here comes the Sandman, the best part, you know. Um, so it was like, I mean, I just feel like that was such a great. And I, I finally went to the Apollo Theater actually just last year. I had never been to it um, all the years. Like I lived in New York, I never even went up there. So that was cool. It's it's that was a really interesting show. The best part is watching the audience members. The, oh. they're, they're super enthusiastic, standing up and cheering, and like, yeah. Yeah. or they're just like, "Boo, get off!" Yeah, throw, throwing tomatoes and stuff. It was very much like the Gong yeah. Show or America's Got Talent. But I was going to say, of people who got booed off, I'm. I this might not have been '80s. This might have been '90s. But I believe Lauren Hill went on and was booed off. I treat you bad. audience was um was half the entertainment for sure it was that thing of like i'm gonna you know the waving to our like pointing out the door like waving yeah <laughs> john i'm so mad that we've never been in the audience i know <laughs> i would be like can we sit in the front please i know oh my god i, I would give anything that I, is we haven't fun. mentioned the awesome denny terrio and dance fever by the way oh my god which yeah well, a lot of people think that's a 70s show, but it ran to like 1987 or something. Exactly. And the, the longer it ran, the more bizarre it got. If you watch some of the late latter, if you're if you're a connoisseur of dance fever, you have to watch the latter day episodes. Well, I'm definitely a connoisseur because it starred Adrian Zemed, the star. He after Denny Terrio left, Adrian hey. Zemed was the host, and we all know him as the star of the Greek, fabulous movie Grease Two, which I've talked about before. But before, just real quick, I was looking it up. Yes, in 1987, at age 13, I'm looking it up on my uh, phone right now. Lauren Hill sang at the Apollo on Showtime at the Apollo and was booed off stage. Now oh. she gets booed for not showing up on stage, but back <laughs> then, but that was, so obviously she was fine, but yes, let's go back to dance fever. It was, you know, it all started off in like, uh, you know, it was there, I, a disco thing, you know, disco was huge and everything went disco in the late seventies. But I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that that contest, which you could say was maybe a forerunner of shows like, so you think you could dance? It lasted almost throughout the entire eighties and it, you know, got yeah. into, the, it was more like what people like break dancing and like doing Michael Jackson type dancing and stuff like that. First of all, I'm fascinated also by anything that was like last days of disco that extended out like way past its sell by date. I think that's a really fascinating era of like, it's like you're the last guy out of Vietnam or something. It's like, you know, everyone's moved on except for you, but dance fever had its own, basically made its own gravy. I mean, it was um, always great to just tune in and watch people dance. Uh, by the way, I also had a thing about, <laughs> I don't know why these guys like Denny Terrio and Adrian Zemed, these like kind of like caramel complected dance guys, you know, and I loved him as Johnny Nagarelli, by the way, in Greece too, which I was Thank in Greece too. So don't the even superior, get me. The superior Greece, the superior Greece. There's a recurring theme here. I just really wanted to be on a show. I really wanted to dance on either MV3 or American Bandstand or Dance Party USA or any of those dance shows. I really wanted to be on Putting on the Hits. I actually used to, um, I was going to do a Susie song. I don't, I probably spellbound, uh, but I used to, you know, like, 
No, I actually wanted to do like an animal by the glove. So I probably would not have ended up on the show. But I used to I used to like practice in front of my mirror for that. And they were like lip, I think put it on the hits actually, just to go back to that for a second, started lip sync contests all over the country and clubs and stuff because there was a club in LA that used to do it. And my I was in second place at Spanky's in North Ridgeville doing Thomas Dolby. That's <laughs> a video of that and were your jeans cuffed. Uh, no, I wore a lab coat, uh, circle glasses. <laughs> it, was it was it was killer. And uh, I really wanted to go on Dance Fever too because I think they had children's on uh, like or teen um, episodes or whatever, like junior championships. Right. I really wanted to go on all of these. And then there was another show that we haven't gone to before. There was American Idol. There was Star Search. So Star Search, actually, the heyday when we're talking about people who got booed off stage or, you know, didn't went on these shows and didn't do so well, but then went on to do other things like Cuba Gooding Jr., Cuba Gooding Jr. who did not win on Put Down the Hits. Actually, the heyday of Star Search was not the 80s so much. I do want to just say that when people auditioned for it in the 90s, when it was rebooted in the 90s, there are more people that came out of the 90s Star Search that did not win, but had huge hits mm -hmm. and huge careers. Then The Voice, American Idol, X Factor, America's Got Talent combined. Here are just some of the people who went on Star Search, most of whom have their performances available on uh, on YouTube on video. Tiffany, uh, Justin Timberlake, Destiny's Child, who lost to a band called Skeleton Crew. Uh, Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, pretty much anyone who was part of the Mickey Mouse Club. Alanis Morissette, Aaliyah, she was on in the 80s, actually. Leon Rhymes, the huge songwriter, Shane McAnally, Usher, uh, Bobby Brown, the spokesmodel who later was, uh, and she won a bunch of times, actually, who, you know, as we all know, was in Cherry Pie by Warrant and date, uh, sex video with Brett Michaels and all sorts of other things. All of these people were on Star Search, and most of them did not win. David Archuleta, who got big on American Idol, was on it, and so were uh, a bunch of other people who later went on to to Idol. But this was a pretty pretty great breeding ground for talent. But in the '80s, I think the big success stories were Sawyer Brown, who actually were a legitimate country band that I think are still together, and they went pretty far. I don't know if they won, but they went really far. But do we all remember Sam Harris? Do we remember Sugar Don't Bite? <laughs> Sugar Don't Bite was his like semi hit after he got signed. He was supposed to be Kelly Clarkson. He was supposed to be huge. I'm going to do my thing here. Got to number 36 on the Billboard Hot 100. Respectable. You're so crazy, John Hughes. You know. I know. Why do I remember this crap? <laughs> You're such yeah, a where he like when he got really emotional when he sang like I think somewhere over the rainbow was like his big signature moment. The he was like wow. off his debut record, by the way, it did not chart. Which that was and yes. it didn't chart. Interesting. Nope. <laughs> Top forty wasn't happening somewhere over the rainbow, sung by an obviously gay man in nineteen eighty six. Not was so well on the show. He would do this thing where he got really worked up and really emotional, and kind of his. His version of the the Celine Dion like beating the chest thing was to grab the ends of his like tails of his long like ringmaster tuxedo coat and like kind of turn it into like a cape and like lift it above his head. Do you remember that? Because he was just so overcome with emotion. I thought he was going to be huge. Why wasn't you would know? This. I, I remember the gold records, the like lapels of gold records on his shoulder that kind of like spilled down his long uh, tuxedo coat. And, you know, it, there's camp, there's Liberace, then there's Sam Harris. You know, you're only going to get so far with mainstream America in the 80s. With well, I want to bring up something that you're, you're, you're talking about Star Search, and I actually have a point to make about Star Search, which is first of all, I want to say that Star Search is where I, I mean, I really failed. I watched some Star Searches, but it wasn't for me. It was definitely more of that, like, first of all, it's hosted by Ed McMahon. It's clearly a game show. The interface of it was not, had no artistry. It was um, pop, mainstream pop style, okay? And you're bringing up something else that's very interesting, which is the idea that when you look at any of these shows and what made them interesting and diverse and uh, appeal to a larger audience, okay, is that um, you're talking about artists, like so many of them, 
were uh, from the LGBTQ community and were parts of, of like weird, like um, just sections of like of underground or whatever that, that just, that, that were great and amazing and shaped pop music forever. And shows like Star Search completely like took that out of the equation. You're moving forward with this like Disney, like vanilla kind of, um, it basically set the tone for what the, the music industry would literally be going into the nineties and the aughts of like these like, you know, young, young pretty girls who can sing, okay? Which we have been held hostage by that now for the better part of 30 years. <laughs> or, and it becomes a thing where you're literally taking out anything that could be interesting or different or unique about an artist or even giving those types of artists a, a chance or giving them a platform. There is no platform for somebody out there who is super talented and, you know, might've been featured on, you know, early MTV or might've been featured on one of these other, you know, it's just, um, it kind well, of the aesthetic. Maybe that is true of Star Search. And they actually, yeah. as I mentioned, had a whole spokesmodel category that Bobby Brown, who, you know, from Cherry Pie, you know, and all these other big 80s uh, hair metal videos, you know, she won multiple times. But I don't know if I 100% agree with you. I think I do agree with you when it comes to Star Search. But I do actually think when you look at the shows that Star Search very obviously begat like mainly American Idol and then the voice and X factor. And, and I would say America's got talent too, even though it's not a straight up, you know, America's got talent actually might be the best example because star search was not only music and neither is America's uh, neither is America's got talent. But I will actually say that I think those sh shows root for the underdog. Cause I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound shady. The, the super pretty sexy girls, never win on American Idol. The people who win are the girls next door. It is Kelly Clarkson. It is Jordan Sparks. It is um, Fantasia. Uh, even Carrie Underwood, when she started, you know, didn't look nearly as glamorous on Idol as she did now because people see them either. There's, there's various theories. You could say that that's women who are the people who mainly vote for these shows feel threatened by them. Or you could say that uh, they just don't seem like people that need the help and you want to root for the person who wouldn't get a record deal otherwise because they don't look like a young, pretty girl with things. Not that any of those girls aren't attractive. They were just attractive in like a, yeah. a very approachable girl next door way. The sex pots on the show, like the that's why when I'm talking about all these people on Star Search who didn't win, like Beyonce and Britney and Christina Aguilera, although they were kids when they were on, but you know, these kind of people who went on to be huge pop stars, maybe that's why they didn't win is because they didn't, they seemed, I, I think these shows, the one thing I'll say, I totally agree with what you're trying to say or what you said, but I will say the appeal of these shows, at least on paper, starting mm -hmm. with Star Search, was that they were supposed to give an opportunity to someone who wouldn't get it in the traditional way. When do we see like a certain year or a certain trend? What can we pinpoint to when like music on 80s television started to become, you know, for lack of a, a better way to describe it, less cool? 87. John? 87, okay, why that year? I don't know. Because <laughs> it's like, I don't know why, but it felt like we were hurtling toward, it's like, I don't know why, but all the interesting, cool stuff from the beginning of the decade seemed to sort of had fallen, shifted into some, like, there's a lot of money being thrown at stuff. Like, there was a lot of, um, you know, egos being thrown around. Uh, you know, certainly MTV had changed its kind of programming and who they were marketing to, and also being a part of wagging this dog. Like deciding what was gonna be the thing. And then the industry would follow, which is something that was completely the opposite when at the beginning of the decade, right? And um, so the, the star making machine of MTV, um, they, they made a lot of different choices. They started to develop different types of things. And um, for some reason, I just feel like around that time, the kinds of records that were being made, the, the way that the music business followed that, okay, knowing that a visual element was in play right out the gate. Like that's when we're starting to, like we're branding these artists with a visual element, you know, very clearly and distinctly, which is something that record companies were not thinking about 
again, this all started with radio airplay. This is all, this all started in a countdown economy of like who's on the charts and now it becomes an image-based situation. And so when you switch to an image model, okay, then you're sacrificing chances on, on artists and records and weird things that might not fit your idea of what that imagery, uh, you know, that image is. Really, it was the beginning of the whole industry, I think, changing into the 90s. And then the final, you know, when leading to like when grunge came along and then like reinvigorated the whole industry in a certain way but definitely the visual aspect became if i'm being clear here that i think that the visual aspect everyone figured it out and they dialed it in a little tighter that's my point is that they dialed it in tighter and there wasn't enough room or oxygen for artists that were um on the cutting edge or even near the cutting edge to break through that's well I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because an argument that has been made that was made back when MTV started an argument that for the record, I very much disagreed with, but a lot of the crusty rockist boomer, okay. Boomers of the time were against MTV and against music videos. Cause they were like, Oh, it's too much about the visuals. It's more about image than artists. And we can all think of artists that sort of didn't survive the transition on MTV because of how they looked or because they weren't making good videos. And there were a lot of people that thought back then in 1981, 1982, 1983, that the emphasis that the MTV, the rise of MTV had put on looks and image and uh, presentation was eclipsing music. I didn't agree with that, but a lot of people do. I always thought music and presentation and fashion and all that go hand in hand. So, we spent two podcast episodes talking about all these TV shows and how for a lot of people that was how we learned about music, whether it was Saul Gold or whatever. Do you think in the long run we're like they did more harm than good because it was more about watching the slinky solid gold dancers or whatever than it was about just the music itself? I don't feel that way, but you're sort of making an argument that the visuals became more important and no, the image became more important. Okay. image of something and that even includes the the backlash for example like when starting like in 86 87 when i was really listening to like rem a lot okay and so i remember seeing rem for the first time on a show called livewire um it was like some kids show on nickelodeon hosted by that guy fred um fred what's his name but he has white hair and um i think he's still around anyway i saw rem on that show and i remember thinking like Again, like as the pendulum swings back and forth, as I had gone from like my new wave fascination and then all of a sudden here's this other band that looks nothing like these people with like heavy makeup and stuff on MTV now. These guys are like guys from a town like mine, you know what I mean? And so then that started to have an underground value, you know, and um, and they did, they did a lot of videos, but they were more about, I don't know, there was something about their credibility that was a selling point. And the pendulum swings from, splash and, and trash and, and glam to this like credibility place that's been going on since the beginning of time you know so i feel like um you know i don't know i, I mean there's there's a lot to parse and i certainly don't have any numbers in front of me john hughes i'll let you yeah john will have the numbers in front of him so john <laughs> put on put on your nerd hat and tell me in your in your mind where you think the maybe shark jumping point was for when music television, not MTV necessarily, but just music television started to lose its cool. I think Rachel's right on target. I think in 87, 88, you've got the, uh, the cancellation of solid gold, uh, American bandstand disappeared into the ether in late 1986. You've got the end of our beloved putting on the hits and uh dance that was it that was it yeah. when the hits went off the air that's when everything went to shit that's yeah. that's it that's, that's then, it right and usa pulls night flight and you know right. reduces it i think only to like two hours and then it gets syndicated that's really yeah. kind of the end i will be incredibly personal and selfish and say that's also after i graduated high school i didn't have free time to watch tv anymore so uh that's where it kind of faded for me personally but i think there's a lot there's a deep demarcation line there in 87, 88. Well, I want to ask you this in terms of demarcation lines, John, because you being like the nerdy and statsy guy, you'll know this. Did something happen around that time, 87, 88, in terms of like how people consume TV, like in terms of 
cable becoming oh, uh, or, or VCRs becoming a more of a widespread thing? Is there anything like that that we can do where we can say, okay, the people were no longer sitting around for three hours waiting for that night flight to loop or whatever? Yeah, you had not only MTV, you now had VH1, Turner Classic Videos, or whatever it was called, the Turner Music Channel that lasted like a half year. Yeah. Uh, you had, uh, instead of, you know, Night Flight, you had Night Flight and Radio 1990. Anybody remember that with Lisa Robinson? <laughs> you know, Radio 1990, rock and roll with personality. Host Catherine Kinley with the latest and greatest from the world of music. Feature interviews and exclusive stories with journalist Lisa Robinson and a bevy of rock's best. Videos, news, current events, all the facts and fun of popular music each weekday on the USA Network. Radio 1990, always a step ahead at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, Monday through Friday. You know, uh, you had all these little uh, sh spinoff shows. It was it was like, you know, OK, here, we're going to get super nerdy here. Since you asked me to be nerdy, I'm going to be nerdy. Bring it you, on. Talk nerdy to me. You used to have one X-Men comic book. All of a sudden you had X-Men, Wolverine, the New Mutants. <laughs> when when something's hugely successful, you spin it off and you chop it up. It is so finely to a point where it's like the, the thing that made the one thing unique and popular is no longer unique. And so it kind of fades. Well, one thing I want to wrap with is, and I touched upon this earlier, but we're now in a, you know, obviously viewing habits have changed a ton since 1987, you know, let alone the early 80s. And everyone, no one's really watching TV anymore. Most people watch things on streaming services, but we are, and you know, it's a, like, it's like that book, uh, The Long Tail, whatever, you know, everything's very fragmented. But the plus side of that is if there's something you like, you can probably find it online. You can, you know, whether you want to watch anything we were just talking about, you can find clips of it on YouTube. You can find all 18 of those putting on the hits clips on YouTube. Go watch them now after this podcast, everybody. But do you think that now with the internet or whatever, with streaming services, and with the fact that at the moment we're in the middle of a pandemic where people are staying home and consuming more content, do you think like this sort of, do you think there's a, an opening for music programming that has that early spirit of all of these shows we've been talking about, that Wild West spirit. Are we in the middle of another Wild West? Can I just can I just break in here for a minute and say, I really hope so, because I have de been developing this for some time. And I, whether it is Music Laden or Top Pop or Top of the Pops or the Old Grey Whistle Test or whatever, um, my last program, Musique, for example, uh, and by the way, I don't have a budget for anything I do. I, I basically go out and I do with my Rolodex and my camera and my skills and my graphics, okay? And luckily that lends itself to a certain level of like, you know, um, like groovy, low fidelity, you know, UHF, whatever. But um, I really believe, and music reflects this, that there needs to be another, like there should be a program that has interviews, that has um, live performances, that has uh, promo films, that has even a look back, like little documentary moments and stuff. And this is something that I have been trying to do for some time. And I'm still, my phone is, is quiet right now. So we'll see. But um, I really hope it does. I think that the pendulum is ready to swing back again. We are ready to go back from that narrow casting of the internet where everybody's kind of in their own lane. Everybody's screaming over each other, trying to promote something, okay? To a place where context is important. Context matters when you're presenting a new artist. We're talking about a lot of stuff right now during this pandemic that we're all taking a second look at how sustainable it actually is. And I think that when it comes to how artists are functioning and making money and making records, um, you know, we all know that that's a struggle. We all know that it's a struggle to promote and to make on the back end. And now there is going to be, we're, we're gonna have some trouble with venues for a while. There will not be venues <laughs> for a while. Um, and we so, need our live music in other ways. And this, you know, TV shows could be the way. That's right. So that's, not just live streams from your living room, not just person no. on uh, Instagram live, creative stuff. Pro produced content that is collect connected by some un under the groovy umbrella that, uh, that puts everything together in a way that even that has a certain amount of artistry to it or should. Okay. Like th the interface of it. And for anybody in my world or who's ever given me the advice of things being too long or having to make things clips on YouTube or do things like cutting it up and chopping it up, 
um, I've always um, I've always fought against that. I want things to be long form again, even if it's just something you turn on for an hour and it's in the background because that's what I want to see. And it gives artists a chance to breathe, and it gives um, it gives you uh, the resources to be able to promote an artist who deserves to be promoted, but maybe doesn't have the the money that another. You know, we're really at a point where really, unless you have money, you can't you can't get through. You just can't. Well, I think the curatorial aspect you're talking about is important. There's a lot of noise out there. It's very hard to find stuff. So I very much encourage you to keep pursuing that. Also, please, you got connections. Can we revive Put It On The Hits? I think the big takeaway from this entire podcast <laughs> is that Put It On The Hits needs to come back. If you, yes. are, if you tuned out a few minutes yeah. ago and you watch just like the bullet points, that's <laughs> it. Put It On The Hits needs to come back like can we right. not lip sync battle that's fun too but that's not okay. the same thing that's celebrities i want like regular people just like randomly lip syncing to billy eilish songs while wearing like a wig with like green roots like yes that's what i want yes so and only only if john hughes will host it oh my god well we're gonna have to co-host it john because i just came up you know well we'll just we'll have to take this conversation offline get our get our powerpoint together get our deck together we are pitching this it's going to happen, but there's so, I think there, you know, there's so much stuff from the eighties, you know, in terms of its spirit as well as it's like lo-fi scrappy aesthetic that really could apply to today's pop culture. So I hope that stuff happens. I've really enjoyed talking about all of these shows with you guys. Is there anything else, Rachel, that you want to talk about that you're working on that will keep this crusade going? Well, I'm always working on all kinds of things all the time. And uh, all of that stuff is over at network77.com. Uh, Network 77 is an independent channel. And it's basically, there's not even a Patreon for it. It's like, you know, viewers like you can donate to it so that I can keep doing this groovy stuff that I do. And uh, I am working on another program right now. And, um, and it's really beautiful. And it's with a bunch of stuff I've had in the can for a while. So it's uh, it's going to be great. I'm really excited about it. And uh, of course, music, the most recent music show I produced is up on the front page right now and features, uh, you know, Liam Hayes and Ted Leo and Jillian Hatfield and Amy Nanza presenter and, oh, and cool. commercials in it even for like Arden Studios and commercials for uh, like John Langford's art. And, you know, it's it's a beautiful like community vibe. And so I'm really proud of it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's really well, great. I'm going to sign off and watch all of that. And then I'm going to get on YouTube and watch all of the put in on the hits videos and some, <laughs> and some Sam Harris on star search. I'm going to watch all of them. I'm going to take a big old deep dive. Thank you internet for existing. And thanks to our listeners. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, John Hughes. As always, I'm Lindsay Parker and I've been joined by John and Rachel. And we want to thank you guys for listening. Remember to rate us and review us on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll catch you next time. Was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.